dreadnought. What was the role of militarism in the outbreak of the First World War? As you know, there are generally regarded as being four main causes of the outbreak of the First World War. Militarism, alliances, imperialism and nationalism. In this podcast, we're going to talk specifically about militarism, and we're going to look in detail at one aspect of it. So, just to fill in the background of where we are in the run-up to 1914, Europe is divided into two armed camps. In the centre of Europe, you have the Triple Alliance, Germany, Italy and Austria-Hungary. Now remember, from a lot of the other things that we've looked at, the Bosnian crisis and the Moroccan crises, Italy is somewhat of a semi-detached member of the Triple Alliance. On either side of the Triple Alliance is the Triple Entente. That's Great Britain, France and Russia. These two armed camps are staring each other down in a decade-long game of chicken, waiting to see who is going to blink first. The key thing to remember is that all of these alliances are actually defensive, but because they are secret alliances, nobody knows that they're defensive. And so they believe that the alliances that the other side have might actually be an offensive alliance designed to attack them. So that's the basic setting with these two armed camps looking at each other. Up until the later part of the second decade of the 1900s, you see a very moderate increase in the size of people's armed forces. For example, from 1900 to 1910, France's army, including its trained reserves, only goes up by 100,000 men. Russia's army goes from 1.1 million men to 1.3 million men. This is the same pattern for all of the countries, a very moderate increase. Slight, noticeable, yes, but not major. However, from 1910 to 1914, you see a massive increase. Why? Well, at this point, I'd ask you to make sure that you've listened to the podcast on the Moroccan crises, because the key thing is, between 1910 and 1914, you've had the Agadir crisis of 1911, and that is when all of these countries in Europe start to feel that war is inevitable. War is coming, and that leads to a huge ramping up of military spending, and a huge increase in the size of people's armies. For example, that Russian army that went from 1.1 million men to 1.3 million men in 1910, from 1910 to 1914, goes from 1.3 million men to 6 million men. The German army goes, in 1910, from 0.7 million to 4.5 million there is a huge increase in military spending. These countries are arming themselves ready for the war that they believe is coming. Now, they may think that they are merely arming themselves in order to defend themselves. But the question you have to ask yourself is, do these countries arming themselves 
make the outbreak of a war more likely? We can answer that question by looking at a case study. And the case study is suggested to us by the oddity in the size of the armies. If we look at the data of how the armies increased from 1910 to 1914, we spot the outlier. And the outlier is Great Britain. Great Britain's army doesn't change in size. That's not actually, strictly speaking, true. It drops. It gets smaller. The British army shrinks while every other country in Europe is building their armies up. The British army gets smaller. Why? Well, the answer is quite simple, of course. The answer is that Britain does not rely on its army for defence, or indeed for offence. The British rely on their navy. They are a naval power. All of Britain's wealth is reliant on empire trade. And the key to Britain's defence is the fact that it is an island. Therefore, a strong navy will protect it from invasion. But a strong navy will also protect that empire trade, which is what keeps the country ticking over. So the navy is where the investment will go, not the army. And this leads us to our case study to have a look at how militarism and the idea of an arms race increases the likelihood of war. And it is to do with the naval rivalry between Britain and Germany. It starts in 1906 with the launch of a new type of ship called the Dreadnought. And the name Dreadnought literally means fear nothing. And it's very difficult to get your head around what an earth-shaking event the launching of the Dreadnought was, because the Dreadnought is something different. It is bigger. It is faster. It is stronger. It can hunt down any other ship afloat. And the other ship can attack it, but the Dreadnought is armoured so much more that other shells will just bounce off it and the size of its guns and the reach of its guns means that it can hunt down and sink any other ship it pleases. The Germans refer to every other ship afloat as a five-minute ship because, they say, that's exactly how long these ships will last against a dreadnought. So this is a, this is a quantum leap forward in battleship design and should, in theory, secure British supremacy over the seas. Except it doesn't. Because it's brand new and there's only one of it. That now means that Britain's naval supremacy, which relied upon the fact that they had which relied upon the fact that they had this huge fleet of battleships, now doesn't matter. Because one dreadnought is better than the other ships. And one dreadnought is a lot easier to build than all of the other ships. And that is exactly what Germany does. Germany begins to construct its own versions of the dreadnoughts. And this causes outrage in British public opinion. This is seen as a direct threat to the status and position of Britain in the world, and also a direct threat to the British Empire. You have to remember that this is a matter of survival to Britain. The navy is key to Britain's defence and Britain's economic survival. 
but it isn't for Germany. As the First Lord of the Admiralty, Winston Churchill said, A German fleet is a luxury, not a national necessity. And he's right. Germany has no real need of a navy. And so this leads to continuing protests in British public life. For example, in 1909, the British Navy plans to build four dreadnoughts. But some elements demand that it be doubled. Their slogan, which you'll see in newspapers and sources from the time, is We want eight and we won't wait. And this rivalry, where the two nations are building dreadnoughts and trying to outpace each other in the number of dreadnoughts that they have got built, comes to a head in 1911. Now remember, 1911 is the year of the Agadir crisis, and if you go back and double-check on that podcast, you will see that there is a naval element to the Agadir crisis, which makes it really strike home for British public opinion. Now, by 1911, Britain is so far ahead of German construction of a dreadnought fleet that the rivalry is, to all intents and purposes, over. Britain has won. Germany has achieved nothing through this apart from building itself a fleet of 17 dreadnoughts. That's 17 dreadnoughts as opposed to the British fleet of 29 dreadnoughts. So why did they do it? If they were never actually intending to beat Britain, and it was clear that they weren't going to beat Britain, why did they do it? There's two different approaches to answering that question. The first one is to look at it from the personal, and the second is to look at it from the political. Firstly, the personal. The drive to create a German navy came largely from Kaiser Wilhelm, who, don't forget, is related to the British royal family and is envious of the British Empire. He said, with his policy of Weltpolitik, that he wants Germany to have a place in the sun. And in order to do that, they need a navy. He's also been quite upfront about the fact that he is jealous of the fact that Britain has this strong navy. As he says in his own autobiography, I had a peculiar passion for the navy. It sprang to no small extent from my English blood. When I was a little boy, I admired the proud British ships. They awoke in me the will to build ships of my own like those some day, and when I was grown up, to possess a fine navy, just like the English. So that's the first thing. It's a matter of prestige for the country. It's a matter of prestige for the leader of the country. What about the political? Well, this can best be summed up with the idea of security. Remember, Germany's nightmare. It is easy for Germany to be surrounded. Germany cannot survive in the event of a two-front war. All of German strategy is constructed around trying to find a way to ameliorate that threat. Von Tirpitz, the leader of the German navy, sees building up a German navy as a way of securing supplies so that if Germany ever does find itself surrounded on the continent and attacked from all sides, they still have a way to ensure that the country can be fed. Now it's worth pointing out that that's not actually a bad idea. Remember, the collapse of Germany in the First World War can largely be placed at the door of the British blockade of trade coming into Germany. So, in a sense, Tirpitz actually had a point. 
If he had been able to secure the trade coming into the country and avoid that blockade, Germany would have been in a much stronger position going into the 100 days of 1918. So there you have it. Those are the two main reasons for why Germany builds up its navy. But what are the practical effects if Germany doesn't actually outstrip Britain in terms of naval supremacy? What effect does it have on the political situation in the early 1900s? It seems clear that Germany never really understood how much of a pressure point this was. Germany never really saw how much of a threat and how much of a gut instinct the British had that this was a direct attack on them and a direct threat to their position in the world. So Germany, from their point of view, is merely trying to build up their prestige and also to secure trade. But Britain sees this as an aggressive attempt to attack the British supremacy on the sea. So we can say quite clearly that militarism, certainly in the case of the naval arms race between Britain and Germany, makes war much more likely, both practically and psychologically. The naval arms race made the British people feel like a war with Germany was necessary because Germany was messing around in their affairs and was putting pressure on them in the areas that were absolutely key for their survival. It is unlikely that Britain would have wanted to go to war with Germany had the naval race not happened. So we can sum it up by saying that by 1914 the naval arms race is over more or less and Britain has clearly won, but the damage has been done in terms of setting the table for war between Great Britain and Germany. And the same is true for all the elements of militarism that you see building up during the early years of the 20th century. The mere fact that these countries are equipping themselves, waiting for a war, makes that war much more likely. Someone who goes out armed with a knife, believing that they are going to be defending themselves, is much more likely to end up stabbing somebody. It's the simple nature of things. People who are armed are more likely to start a fight. So when you are thinking, about the four main causes of the First World War, you need to think about militarism, and you need to think about whether it is an actual cause of the war or whether it merely creates the conditions in which a war is more likely. And when you are thinking about the naval arms race again, you need to remember that it is over by 1914. So it can't be regarded as a cause for the war, however, you must be able to say in an exam answer how much it led towards a war involving Britain and Germany and why. I hope all of that has been useful. Thank you very much for listening. Good luck in your exams.